Well, here we are. How many of you remember last week's sermon? How many of you are going to remember this one? I suspect this illustrates to you the sense that I have of being a community on Sundays, but not usually on weekdays. Of course, there are exceptions. I expect particularly for those who live closer. But mainly we join on Sunday within these four walls and then we split. And many, again not all, of the ideas we talk about on Sunday split too. Perhaps to be dimly recalled at some later point. As part of my preparation for this sermon, I looked back I went back and listened to all the sermons since Pastor Don departed us. Bishop Jason Cunningham's thesis was, interruption-based ministry enlarges the borders of Christianity, and it is the spiritual commodity of availability that does that. He encouraged us to be more fluid as a congregation, perhaps loosen a foundation stone and to do what Jesus did, change plans. Sheldon Martin voiced a weariness that he sensed in us as a congregation, but at the same time challenged us with this declaration, the status quo is not acceptable. He explained risky ventures carefully planned out to bring the greatest possibility of success are assumed to be fundamental activities of kingdom citizens. There are lots of bridges to build, he said, and we are a doing people. Our MYF discussed radical community, international relations through religion, and raised the pointed question, who feels out of place in our churches? Moderator of Lancaster Mennonite Conference, Keith Weaver, asked, to whom is the Holy Spirit sending you? And suggested that discipleship might have to become more intentional in a post-Christendom world. He proposed a new conversation on the role of the Holy Spirit. Along with the sermon, Jesus Cruz raised the parallel question, who is being sent to us? And Jean Kilhafer Hess delivered what I can only describe as a powerful Jeremiad based on the contentious topic of immigration and expanding into an attack on privilege and oppression. She ended with a resounding, the voice of God and those of his people call us to nothing less. I humbly submit to you that the voice of the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through these leaders now. Will we listen? Will we follow where we are being called? It was for the purpose of going forward that I turned back to these sermons. And now we look forward with Jesus and set our eyes on Jerusalem.
Elisha was at work, as he did many days of the week, especially at this particular time of the year. He was out in the fields plowing. He notices someone approaching at a distance, making his way over the lumpy earth. This stranger gets closer, close enough that Elisha realizes someone is coming for him. They are making eye contact, and the stranger keeps striding towards Elisha with an intent look of purpose, takes off his cloak, and covers Elisha. Now, I don't know if this was a universal symbol or what, but the point is that Elisha knows what it means. He knows he is being asked to follow. We imagine that as this sinks in, Elijah has already begun walking away, not a word spoken, so that Elisha has to run after him to catch up, leaving the oxen to plow the fields themselves. I think Elisha must have realized that Elijah meant right now, as he is already walking away. This makes sense of Elisha's pleading tone, please, I pray thee, he asks for permission to say goodbye to his parents. Elisha, Elijah, is unswerving. Go, turn back, for what have I done to you? He is, perhaps, just a bit upset. Elijah must have been going for the silent drama and symbology of the cloak and the striding away and the following. Elijah says, forget it, you're not ready. But I cannot quite imagine Elijah continuing to stalk off as Elisha goes back to his oxen. I imagine him walking out, slowing down as he thinks and replays the scene in his head. I imagine Elijah not too far off, looking for Elisha, hoping for Elisha. I imagine him lurking in the shadow of some mountain, just close enough so he can see and hear fragments of conversation. He's waiting to see if Elisha will follow. Indeed, it is in giving Elisha the chance to reconsider that we see a foretelling of God's forgiveness of us through Jesus. Elisha, in the meantime, turns back, thinking. He doesn't run. He turns back. At what point does he make his decision? Perhaps he gets to the oxen and thinks to himself, thinks that he could just keep plowing and pretend that nothing happened and go home at the end of the day. But he knows he could not rest. He knows that it is now or never. It's now or never. So right there in the middle of the field, he slaughters his oxen. Imagine the surprise on the face of the other field workers. Oh boy, we say, he's really burning his bridges now. His very means of livelihood he's cutting himself off from to follow a crazy man he doesn't know to who knows where. Imagine the gossip and the well-meaning people who worry about his safety. Elisha does not take the time to ask for wood to be brought. He takes the heavy yoke and he takes the reins and builds a fire and boils the flesh of his oxen. He gives the meat to whoever happens to be around at the time. 
I imagine it's dark now, or at least approaching dusk. The rest of the animals and the farmhands would mostly be back at home by now in the stables. Elisha holds everything up, and naturally, people are curious. But then, just as they turn their thoughts towards home and wonder what Elisha is going to do next, he rises and sets out into the gathering darkness to find Elijah. Now, as I said before, I imagine Elijah not too far off. But Elisha does not know this. Elisha sets out into the dark, into the unknown, to seek, find, and follow Elijah. Will we follow into the dark? What would that mean? Today, in addition to the normal offering, we will also be invited to offer to leave something behind that hinders us from following. Thomas Aquinas wrote that removing stumbling blocks is the path to faith. Faith is needed to follow. Throughout the rest of the sermon, you may think of what you would like to write as your offering. There is a paper in the bulletins to write upon, and there will be a collection basket for these offerings. Our oxen. And it came to pass, in the completing of the days of his being taken up, that he fixed his face to go on to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers before his face. And having gone on, they went into a village of Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was going on to Jerusalem. This is a more literal rendering of Luke's Greek, where the Greek word for face, prosopon, includes the preposition pros, which can mean abiding at a place, motion from a place, or motion to a place, depending with which case it is used. Now, we like to think that once we delve into the Greek, it's going back far enough but I'm about to propose my hypothesis as to some Greek etymology. So I hope you're all ready. The fragment pon, which is the end of the word for face, is closely related to words for work, suffer, and toil. My hypothesis is that the word prosopon, face, comes from the preposition pros, and the fragment pawn. Thus, face literally might mean something like towards work, which makes sense because we typically turn our faces towards the work at our hands. Now, whether my proposed etymology could withstand the rigors of Greek scholardom or not, I do not know. But Luke does use the word for face where he could easily do otherwise. Luke's use of the word face brings out Jesus' sense of purpose. He has set his face toward Jerusalem in order to work, suffer, and toil. And he knows it. Donald G. Miller, in the Layman's Bible Commentary, 
writes that Jesus' decision to go to Jerusalem was a steadfast decision to do the will of his Father. In other words, to follow. Jesus was looking forward. James and John ask if Jesus wants them to command fire to come down from heaven to destroy the unhospitable Samaritans. Some manuscripts add that the pair asked to do so, as also Elijah did. But Jesus turns his face and rebukes them. Ye have not known of what spirit ye are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save. Jesus makes it clear that James and John still don't get it. They're looking backwards. Jesus is not Elijah, and death is not looking forward. James and John do not understand why they are in Samaria. Jews were known to have been massacred by Samaritans, and Samaria was definitely a place on the map that Jews avoided, much less a place in which they begged hospitality. So what in the world was Jesus doing in hostile territory, asking to stay the night? Can we see Arab-Palestinians knocking on the doors of present-day Israeli Jews? Jesus says that he has come to save. He was offering the Samaritans a chance to follow, and they did not take it. Still, Jesus, James, and John lived to go on to the next village. As United States citizens fighting wars at home and around the globe, are we better than that? And on the opposing side, where is our Samaria? Where are the doors of our enemies that we will knock on to ask if we can stay there? Many sources point out that chapter 9 through 19 of Luke are odd in that they are about Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. But they tell us very little. And what little we do have is confusing about the progress of the journey. This section of Luke is more or less a collection of scenes of journeying which invite us to dwell not so much on the journey itself but rather on the way in which it is undertaken. Within this, in the next part of the Luke reading, Luke tells us three accounts of following. The first man eagerly offers to follow wherever Jesus goes. Jesus responds, the foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is almost constantly on the move. Along the way, he asks for shelter. He has just come from Galilee, where he is rejected. He is in Samaria, where he is rejected. And he is headed to Jerusalem, where he knows only too well that he will be turned away by his own people. He cannot rest until his work is done. In his interpretation of Luke, William Barclay posits, it may well be that we have done great hurt to the church by letting people think that church membership need not make so very much difference. 
He goes on to say, we ought to tell them that it should make all the difference in the world. While the church would undoubtedly be smaller, he says, those few people would really follow Jesus. Shall we rest before our work is done? Jesus bids a second man, follow me. Akoluthe moi. The second man responds, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus answers, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke doesn't tell us, but we assume this man goes back to his father. The Greek word Jesus uses for dead, nekrus, means a dead body or a corpse. There are connotations here of spiritual death, both of an individual or of a body of believers. Physically, when we die, our bodies no longer contain our spirits. They are empty shells. And by definition, when we die spiritually, our bodies no longer contain our spirits. They are empty shells. Barclay suggests that maybe the man's father was not yet dead, nor necessarily even close to dying. His version of the man's response is, I will follow you after my father has died. Perhaps the father merely needed help on the farm, and his son did not want to feel disloyal. Either way, Jesus makes clear that if we want to live, we had better live for the kingdom. And if we are going to spend our lives waiting for our own death or another's death, we are as good as dead already. A third man's response to Jesus' call is, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my household. Jesus responds, no one who puts his hand on a plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This man sounds a lot like Elisha. Rather than telling him to turn back, as Elijah does Elisha, Jesus states a fact. No one can adequately plow a field while looking back. Elisha, who was plowing when Elijah came upon him, certainly understood the importance of not looking back. We must turn our faces to Jerusalem and face our work. Now, all three of these men express their intent to follow Jesus, but they want to do it on their own terms. The first one wants a place to lay his head. The second one wants to stay with his father. And the third one wishes to say goodbye to his family. All three fail to act on their spontaneous impulses to follow Jesus. And we're with them on that, aren't we? After all, life takes planning. We need schedules. We desire security. But after all that, Jesus is still there, lurking in the shadows like Elijah, waiting, hoping. His call echoes in our ears. Follow me. Akoluthe moi. Will we turn back to comfort? to home, to family? Or will we look unapologetically forward? I would, like to, I would like us to practice a little bit now. 
and this is experimental. So, um, join in the experiment if you feel so called. Um, small acts can have large symbolic meaning. And this is one of the ways we ready and habituate our minds and our bodies to do the real meaningful things, to do the big things. Barclay cites a well-known psychological truth. Every time we have a fine feeling and do not act on it, the less likely we are to act on it. So only if you're willing, I encourage you to stand and face the pew on the opposite side of the church. You're going to be moving, so you may wish to take your belongings with you. There will be no time to bake bread that rises. So please stand, face the pew on the opposite side of the church. Look at the pew directly opposite you and do not look away. The pew you are facing represents Jerusalem, which is not just a place, it is an idea. It represents the way of Jesus, and most simply, it symbolizes the act of plowing. Your goal, your focus, is to file into the pew directly across from you without turning back, without turning to the side, without focusing your eyes anywhere else. As on any journey, you can expect to bump into obstacles on the way. And those of you who may have difficulty moving or who do not feel called to move from side to side may focus on hospitality of welcoming your new neighbors. So please, proceed, follow. You may sit. <laughs> Thank you. No. Did your eyes stray? What did what did you experience? when your eyes refocused, refocused on your goal. Do you feel like your job is done? Do you feel as though you want to plow another row? Or do you feel more like I, like I suspect we all should?
that our real work is yet unfinished. For freedom, Christ freed us. For freedom, Christ freed us. Stand firm, therefore, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. <clears throat> How can we follow Jesus on his journey and in his mission when he is no longer present on this earth? Paul's definitive and indeed joyful answer is walk in the spirit. Paul was writing to the newly established churches in Galatia in what is modern day Turkey. Paul's work was being undermined by other Christian missionaries who were trying to subordinate Jesus to the law. According to them, males who were not circumcised would be prevented from inheriting the kingdom of God. Just as Jesus was upset at his disciples who took him for Elijah, Paul is angry with these missionaries. Naturally, these events sparked a lot of dissent within the new churches of Galatia, and Paul urges them to return to what he calls the good race. Through love, serve one another as slaves. For the entire law has been summed up in one declarative saying, you will love your neighbor as yourself. What kind of freedom allows us to do this? Paul warns against desires of the flesh sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is important to note that the largest category of fleshly desires Paul lists here are ones which destroy community, hatred, discord, jealousy, wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. The spirit needs community. Where is the community? Well, where is the kingdom of God? Wherever you are. I ask again, where is the community? Wherever you are. That's freedom. You can go wherever you want and still have the spirit with you. The New Interpreter's Bible claims this freedom as a gift. 
and continues, where freedom is so understood, it leaves room for genuine diversity. We need not be bound by anxiety about pleasing others. How overwhelmingly refreshing when we are caught up in a society that causes us to care all too much about what others think of us. So, how are you all feeling there on your unfamiliar side of the church? A little out of your comfort zone, I suspect. You think I'm up here, you know, experimenting with you as guinea pigs, but you forget that I'm going to have to go back to an unfamiliar side of the church. Well, the Spirit is sure to push us well beyond our typical boundaries if we listen and follow. And if we intend to become better listeners and better followers of the Spirit, we need to learn how to become comfortable with that discomfort. We need to learn how to become comfortable with discomfort. For we are the body of Christ, and we carry on exactly where Jesus left off. Jesus was certainly a restless man. Let us become restless as the Spirit works through us, the church. What power lies latent within our limbs? What vision lies behind our eyes? Let's put our hand to the plow. The question arises, where shall we plow? Being spirit-led is very much about the unknown. Straight ahead, headed for Jerusalem, building the kingdom of God. But what does this mean in concrete terms? There is evidently great debate in the theological sphere over whether scripture can be read allegorically or, as the New Interpreter's Bible defines it, making imaginative parallels between past narrative and present situation. And although our scripture reading of Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning is not a prime example, Paul was a master of powerful, triumphant, transformational allegory. Our preachers here regularly engage in allegorical accounts. And I posit that allegory is a way of using past events to inform the future and the present. Perhaps if the three would-be followers of Jesus had read First Kings, they would have left their confined zones of security. It is important to note that allegory stays alive by conversation. If there's anything I've learned at St. John's College over four years, it is the importance of conversations. That is how we remember stories. That is how we make the past part of the present. That is how we make the story of Elijah and Elisha real. It is how we make the story of the three potential followers real. And this is how we determine where to go. Let's make these kinds of ongoing conversations part of who we are. And God said, 
I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your children will prophesy, your old ones will dream dreams, and your young ones will see visions. And the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, moderation, against such there is no law. If we may live in the spirit, in the spirit also may we walk. So let's get to listening and talking and following and envisioning all along this journey we're on together as a community. And I would like us now to please greet one another joyfully in this spirit. And when we're done greeting, please turn to the blue hymnal number 412. <laughs> 